0: Section Three of England since Waterloo by John Arthur Ransom Marriott. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter Two: Peace without Plenty, Political, Economic, and Social Dislocation, eighteen fifteen to eighteen twenty two, Part One when wellington won his victory at waterloo the prince of wales had been for nearly five years regent of great britain and ireland after more than one temporary lapse into insanity george the third had finally been bereft of reason in eighteen ten and since then had lived in complete retirement at windsor under the guardianship of his devoted wife his eldest son, now Prince Regent, was perhaps the least reputable member of a family whose common stock of virtue was not superabundant. By no means devoid of ability, not lacking in dignity, and possessed of considerable personal charm, he had nevertheless deservedly forfeited the affection and even the respect of his people for the vindictiveness with which he pursued his wife there may have been reason but nothing can excuse his undutiful behaviour to his father or his harshness toward his only legitimate child a shameless voluptuary a reckless spendthrift a hard drinker and a confirmed gambler his conduct was a constant embarrassment to his ministers and a terrible example to his subjects but his correspondence with the leading statesmen of the time proves that he had an ample measure of political sagacity and no little shrewdness in his judgment of men. He had received the Allied sovereigns in 1814 with a dignity and hospitality worthy of a unique occasion, and his visits to Ireland in 1821 and Scotland in 1822 were afforded evidence of his power to conciliate goodwill when he chose to exert himself to that end but it cannot be denied that the crown lost both political power and social prestige during his reign as regent and king the prince's early attachment to the whigs had sensibly cooled since his accession to a position of greater responsibility and although he had opened negotiations with their aristocratic leaders in 1812, he was probably relieved when the overtures proved sterile. On Spencer Percival's death in 1812, the premiership, together with the leadership of the Tory party, had passed to Lord Liverpool. Robert Banks Jenkinson, second Earl of Liverpool, belongs to a class of statesmen whom we are pleased to regard as typically English. Born in 1770 and educated at the Charterhouse in Christchurch, he entered Parliament as Member for Rye in 1790. He served his official apprenticeship under Pitt, and his administrative experience was exceptionally large and various. Before his accession to the Premiership, he had filled all three secretaryships of state. At the Foreign Office under Addington, he was responsible for the Treaty of Amiens. He was at the Home Office under Pitt from 1804 to 1806, and again under the Duke of Portland from 1807 to 1809, and as Secretary for the Colonies and War from 1809 to 1812, he was immediately responsible for the conduct of the war in the peninsula. He was not included in the Ministry of All the Talents, but he was regarded, particularly by the king, as more than a possible candidate for the premiership in 1807 and again when Percival was preferred to him in 1809. After Percival's assassination, there were prolonged negotiations with Wellesley and Canning on the one side, and with the Whig leaders Grenville Gray and Moira on the other. Ultimately, however, Lord Liverpool formed a government which differed little in personnel from that of his predecessor. Selected as a safe compromise in 1812, Lord Liverpool succeeded in retaining office with satisfaction to his friends and the goodwill of his opponents, for no less than fifteen years. That he was ever in the front rank of English statesmen no one will affirm, but he was an admirable administrator. He filled the highest offices in the state with dignity and efficiency. He spoke with lucidity and good sense. He was conciliatory to his opponents, and he held together his own party as no one else at that time could have done of lord liverpool's colleagues the most prominent were the lord chancellor and the secretaries of state for foreign and home affairs john scott first earl of eldon was throughout his political life a consistent and unbending tory of the deepest hue the younger of two remarkable brothers he entered the house of commons through the good offices of lord thurlow in seventeen eighty-two. He became Solicitor General in Pitt's administration in 1788, Attorney in 1793, Chief Justice of the Common Pleas in 1799, and Lord Chancellor under Addington in 1801. He held that office until after Pitt's death in 1806. To the grief of the King he refused to be associated with all the talents but he returned to the woolsack under Portland in 1807, and for twenty years never quitted it. Despite former differences he enjoyed the confidence of the regent, not less completely than that of George Third, and to the end of his life was the typical representative of that school of Toryism which detested the idea of change or reform. Far inferior to the Chancellor in ability, but belonging to the same school of toryism was the home secretary lord sidmouth canning's merciless lampoons have tended to obscure the substantial merits of dr addington an admirable speaker of the house of commons addington was dragged in eighteen o one from a position he adorned to occupy one to which he was manifestly unequal but though he could not fill Pitt's shoes as premier, Addington was by no means the fool that contemporary satire would suggest. As Home Secretary during the critical years, 1812 to 1821, he must at least have the credit of having performed an exceedingly unpopular duty with unflinching courage and exemplary firmness. Whether he was statesman enough to comprehend causes as well as to deal vigorously with effects is a matter of dispute on which something must presently be said. Incomparably more interesting as a personality than either Sidmouth or Eldon was the Secretary of State for Foreign Affairs, Robert Stewart, Viscount Castlereagh. That contemporaries should have undervalued his merits and achievements, is not perhaps remarkable, for Castlereagh, with all his splendid endowments of character and intellect, was entirely lacking in personal magnetism. Stately in quiet, high-bred self-esteem, fair as the loveless of a lady's dream. Lord Lytton's lines do no more than justice to his remarkable dignity. But he had none of the arts which make for general popularity himself devoid of enthusiasm and too honest to affect a quality he did not possess, he naturally failed to evoke it among his followers. He is, said Cornwallis, so cold that nothing can warm him. The very qualities which gave him his ascendancy in the councils of Europe militated against his success in the British Senate. His calm, unruffled and passionless judgment commanded the respect of continental diplomatists. His curious lack of oratorical skill invited the sarcasm of his parliamentary opponents. But his special misfortune was that throughout his career he should have been overshadowed, in popular estimation, by the brilliant gifts of his great rival Canning and posterity has been slow to correct the misapprehension of contemporaries. For a quarter of a century, Castlereagh played an important part in English politics. For ten years he was the real ruler of England and one of the arbiters of Europe. As chief secretary for Ireland, he was largely responsible for the suppression of the rebellion and mainly instrumental in carrying the act of union. He was Secretary of State for the Colonies and War under Pitt in 1805, and again under Portland from 1807 to 1809. But his real work was done at the Foreign Office, and it is by his ten years' administration of that great department that his reputation must stand or fall coming into office at a moment, 1812, when Napoleon's power, though threatened, was still unbroken. It was his task to maintain the European coalition during the most critical years of the whole war and to represent Great Britain in the negotiations for peace. He reached the zenith of his fame as a statesman in the year of Waterloo the last seven years of his life, with which alone we are concerned in this volume, were not only an anticlimax in his career, they added much to his contemporary unpopularity, and they detracted seriously, though perhaps unjustly, from his posthumous fame. Such were the men to whom, at a critical time, the destinies of the country were confided the task before them was one of appalling complexity. They were called upon immediately and simultaneously to restore equilibrium to the national finances, to relieve the pressure of taxation, to enter upon the gigantic task of liquidating the national debt, to alleviate distress, and to maintain social order and all this at a moment of slackening trade and diminishing revenue. Rarely, indeed, if ever in our history has social discontent been more pronounced or economic distress more general than in the years immediately following upon the peace of 1815. For this there were many reasons. A proverbial aphorism associates peace with plenty, experience teaches on the contrary that the conclusion of a great war is invariably followed by a period of suffering and want but never has the economic recoil of peace been so marked as in the years between eighteen fifteen and eighteen twenty two for this fact the duration and severity of the struggle which ended at waterloo would alone be sufficient to account but all the effects of protracted war were in this case accentuated by the coincidence of an economic revolution without parallel or precedent in magnitude and scope during the long war a new england had come into being and it is hardly matter for surprise that rulers and ruled were alike distracted by the phenomenon that they were slow to diagnose the unfamiliar diseases of the body politic, and slower still to devise appropriate remedies. When the French Republic declared war upon Great Britain in 1793, it had at its back a population of over 26 million souls. To oppose to this, the United Kingdom could command perhaps 14 million people, of whom a discontented Ireland claimed between 3 and 4 million. By 1815 the population of the United Kingdom, despite the drain of the war, had leaped up to 19 million, an increase of 35 percent in 22 years. Such an increase was without precedent in this country. Before 1751 it is believed that the largest decennial increase of population was about 3 percent. Between 1791 and 1801, it was 11 percent. Between 1801 and 1811, 14 percent. And between 1811 and 1821, no less than 18 percent. Well might the benevolent Malthus be alarmed. This phenomenal increase in population was due to the coincidence of prolonged war and economic revolution. There was a simultaneous demand for men, for the arts of war, and the arts of commerce. Artificial stimulus was followed by corresponding depression. With the peace came a secession of demand both for men and for commodities, and the market was suddenly glutted this phenomenon was neither unnatural nor unprecedented but in this case industrial dislocation was intensified by the peculiar conditions of the recent war for the last twenty years england had been the only country in western europe free from the devastating effects of military operations she had consequently been called upon to supply the commercial needs of the whole world and thanks to the recent improvements in agriculture and in manufacturing industry she was in a position to do so the result was seen in a totally unprecedented expansion of foreign trade in seventeen ninety two the total imports amounted to nineteen million six hundred and fifty nine thousand three hundred and fifty eight pounds and the exports to 18,336,851 pounds. In the last year of war, imports rose to 32,987,396 pounds, while the exports reached the amazing total of 58,624,550 pounds but england had not merely secured a virtual monopoly of manufactures she had also become the carrier of the world since napoleon's famous berlin decree and the british retort embodied in the orders in council no ship could sail the seas except under the british flag the extent to which england had become the entrepot of international trade may be gauged by the statistics of foreign and colonial produce re-exported from this country re-exports which in the last year of the peace 1792 amounted to six million five hundred and sixty eight thousand three hundred and forty nine pounds rose in the last year of war to 19,157,818 pounds. The national resources kept pace with the expansion of trade and the growth of population. The revenue collected by Pitt in 1792 amounted to no more than 19,859,123 pounds. The same taxes produced in the last year of the war no less than £45 million. Pounds. But these taxes were, of course, wholly inadequate to the service of the state. During the twenty-three years between 1793 and 1815, over £65 million pounds a year was, on the average, raised for public purposes, and during the last two years, the expenditure reached the appalling total of £105,943,727 pounds for 1813 and £106,832,260 pounds for 1814. An heroic effort was made to meet expenses as far as possible out of revenue. Thus, while in 1793 the tax revenue was, we have seen, about £20,000,000, by 1815 it had risen to £72,210,512, the largest sum ever raised by taxation in Great Britain until the Crimean War. But no modern state could have carried on the Napoleonic War, Still less have sustained by lavish subsidies an European coalition without recourse to loans. Hence, the charge for debt, interest, and management, which in 1793 amounted to less than 9,500,000 pounds, had swollen by 1815 to over 31 million pounds. The capital sum of the debt had increased in an even more appalling degree from £239,663,421 in the former year to £831,171,132 in the latter. Opinions differ as to the policy of Pitt and his successors at the Treasury in raising the loans required in stock of a low denomination, but on the whole the system is generally condemned. Between seventeen ninety three and eighteen oh one, the average rate at which three percent stock was issued was fifty seven pounds seven shillings sixpence per one hundred pounds of stock. Between eighteen oh three and eighteen fifteen, the average price obtained was sixty pounds seven shillings sixpence. Had the financiers of that day had the courage to raise money at something more nearly approaching the market price, say five percent, the burden upon the shoulders of posterity would have been sensibly lightened and the sacrifices demanded of contemporaries not appreciably increased those sacrifices could not under any circumstances have been otherwise than heavy nevertheless during the greater part of the war they were sustained with remarkable cheerfulness employment was abundant trade was advancing by leaps and bounds high prices diffused an air of general if delusive prosperity but during the last five years of the struggle the economic outlook darkened ominously the rigours of the continental system and the british retaliations began to tell war with the united states from eighteen twelve to eighteen fourteen still further dislocated trade while in great britain itself several bad harvests caused the price of wheat to fluctuate violently between eighteen o three and eighteen thirteen the average price of wheat was over five pounds a quarter and in the summer of eighteen thirteen it touched a hundred and seventy one shillings before christmas of the same year it had dropped to seventy five shillings among many causes which contributed to high prices and still more to violent fluctuations one deserves special mention. Since the crisis of 1797, cash payments had been suspended at the Bank of England, and an enforced paper currency had been in circulation. As a consequence, innumerable country banks had sprung up, some of them reared upon very unstable foundations. Between 1797 and 1814, more than 700 such banks came into existence, but more than a third of them stopped payment in the critical years, 1814 and 1815. Inflation of the paper currency naturally followed upon the suspension of cash payments and the multiplication of banks. But until the closing years of the war, the effects were less marked than might have been anticipated in eighteen ten there were twenty five million pounds of notes in circulation and the premium on gold rose to eight pounds seven shillings eight pence per cent in eighteen thirteen it rose to twenty nine pounds four shillings one pence and the gold value of a five pound note fell to three pounds ten shillings in eighteen fifteen the premium fell to thirteen pounds nine shillings sixpence and the gold value of a five-pound note rose consequently to four pounds six shillings. In the face of such violent fluctuations, no prudence could avert commercial ruin. Trade was reduced to a mere gamble, and violent oscillations in prices inflicted dire hardship alike upon producer, retailer, and consumer it may be doubted however whether amongst all the factors which contributed to the prevailing misery there was any single one so potent as the mistaken kindness which inspired the administrators of the poor law the first half of the eighteenth century is one of the bright periods in the history of english pauperism when george the came to the throne the total sum expended on the relief of the poor amounted to no more than £1,250,000 or three shillings seven pence per head of the population. The last twenty years of the century witnessed the legislative abolition of the workhouse test and a sensible slackening in the strictness of administration. The example of the Berkshire magistrates who in 1795 decided to supplement wages out of the rates was so generally followed throughout the south of england as to elevate the resolution of a local bench to the dignity of an act of parliament the notorious spienhamland act contained an elaborate schedule by which income was to be apportioned to family the policy embodied in this act has been vigorously assailed and cannot on economic grounds be defended it stimulated population, it encouraged idleness, it depressed wages, and it rendered still harder the hard lot of the thrifty and independent laborer. The seed flung carelessly broadcast at the close of the eighteenth century produced an abundant harvest of demoralization and misery in the second and third decades of the nineteenth. The cost of poor relief had risen to 8 shillings 11 pence per head in 1803 and 13 shillings 1 pence in 1811. The annual expenditure on poor relief, which in the first year of George III's reign was 1,250,000 pounds, averaged during the last five years of the reign over 7,000,000 pounds, and the economic burden was perhaps the least of the evils this expenditure entailed. Such were the outstanding features of the situation by which the rulers of England were confronted after the conclusion of the Great War. A labor market congested and dislocated, trade suddenly arrested after a period of abnormal inflation, a gigantic debt, a falling revenue, a disordered currency, a peasantry demoralized by reckless administration of relief, a populace discontented and ripe for disturbance, all classes involved in a common ruin, landlord and tenant-farmer, capitalist and manufacturer, banker and merchant, skilled artisan and agricultural laborer to those who can attribute all the prevailing misery to the fatuous policy of a selfish oligarchy the above analysis will seem superfluously elaborate to those who refuse to accept this facile explanation and desire to trace surface effects to underlying causes it may be helpful certain it is that without a clear apprehension of the social and economic situation in 1815 there can be no fair criticism of the policy pursued by the government of the day and no real clue to the complex problems by which they were confronted under these circumstances it was singularly unfortunate that lord liverpool should have committed the exchequer to van siddert despite some financial experience and much personal amiability he was obviously unequal to the office at a time of almost unparalleled responsibility. He had neither a strong grip on economic principles nor sufficient business ability to atone for the lack of it. Muddle-headed as a thinker, he was blundering as an administrator. The leading dogma of his economic creed was a blind belief in the virtues of irredeemable paper money. The chief plank in his financial program was the maintenance of the sinking fund even at the cost of fresh loans. In the budget of 1816, Van Sittert had to provide for an expenditure of over 66 million pounds. Apart from the property tax, which stood at two shillings in the pound and yielded about 15 million pounds a year, he could reckon on receipts of over 58 million pounds he proposed therefore to reduce the property tax to one shilling but the opposition regarded this as a very imperfect fulfilment of repeated pledges and raised a strong protest brougham whose brilliant parliamentary career dates from this time led the attack upon van Sittert with extraordinary persistency and skill like his nominal leaders ponsonby and tierney Broom refused the proffered remission of one shilling and demanded that as the war was over the war tax should be altogether abandoned the government was beaten by a majority of thirty-seven and van siddert deprived of his expected seven million five hundred thousand pounds was faced with a large deficit defeated on the property tax he decided to surrender as well the war malt tax an additional two shillings per bushel on malt imposed in 1804. This concession cost him an additional £2,700,000. Even under these circumstances the sinking fund was sacrosanct, and van Sittert solved his problems by borrowing £11,500,000 with one hand, while he paid £15,000,000 into the sinking fund with the other. Such scrupulosity might be magnificent, but it was not sound finance. The year 1816 is nevertheless memorable for a financial transaction of permanent significance. Ireland had become to all intents and purposes insolvent, and it was decided that the only permanent solution of her difficulties was to be found in the consolidation of the British and Irish exchequers this natural sequel to pitt's political union was actually consummated in january eighteen seventeen and conferred an immense though unappreciated boon upon the poorer country for great britain as a whole the outlook was exceedingly gloomy but the clouds were momentarily dispelled by the auspicious marriage of the princess charlotte and the success which attended the naval expedition to algiers on may second eighteen sixteen the princess charlotte augusta heiress to the throne and the only legitimate grandchild of george III, was married to prince leopold georg frederick younger brother of the reigning duke of Saxony-Coburg. her refusal to marry william prince of orange foiled castlereagh's favourite project but it did not diminish her general popularity and her marriage to Prince Leopold was heartily acclaimed by those who hoped at no distant date to be her subjects. The House of Commons voted sixty thousand pounds for the princess's trousseau and settled sixty thousand pounds a year upon her. In August Lord Exmouth was dispatched in command of a large naval force to chastise the day of Algiers for a recent outrage upon the British flag, and to compel him to abandon the practice of Christian slavery. The naval operations were conducted with brilliant success, the objects of the expedition were completely attained, and a death-blow was given to the barbarous and piratical custom of reducing captives to slavery. Marriage bells and brilliant feats of arms might temporarily relieve, but they could not permanently dissipate the prevailing gloom bad harvests, and violent fluctuations of prices were bringing widespread ruin upon agriculturists. In the hope of assisting them, the legislature in 1815 prohibited the importation of wheat until the price reached 80 shillings a quarter. But this afforded no relief when, as in 1816, the price fell to 52 shillings sixpence. It is easy to blame farmers for their folly in taking leases at rents calculated upon war prices and to condemn landlords for extortion. But meanwhile the greatest of English industries appeared to be threatened with imminent ruin. Reports received by the Board of Agriculture in response to a circular letter issued in 1816 attest the severity of the crisis. Farmers who a few years ago were competing eagerly for farms were sending in notices to quit, and many farms were unlet. Mortgagees found it difficult to realize. Credit was collapsing. Banks were failing in all directions. Substantial farmers were becoming parish paupers. And while the producer was ruined, the consumer derived no benefit. In December, 1816, wheat, which in the spring had fallen to 52 shillings sixpence, rose to 103 shillings. Agriculture had become a mere gamble. If landlords and farmers were ruined, merchants and manufacturers were in no better plight. The citizens, wrote the master of the mint, have lost all their feelings of pride and richness and flourishing fatness. Trade is gone, contracts are gone, paper credit is gone, and there is nothing but stoppage, retrenchments, and bankruptcy. Wellesley Pole did not exaggerate the gravity of the situation, nor are the causes of it obscure. The war, as we have seen, had encouraged reckless capital expenditure. Traders, as is their wont, looked no further than their noses. The inevitable happened, with the restoration of normal conditions the continental demand for english goods rapidly slackened prices came down with a run production was paralyzed and thousands of hands were turned adrift to swell the army of the unemployed the crisis was particularly severe in the industries which had been stimulated by the demand for war stores the iron and coal trades were especially depressed out of 34 furnaces in South Staffordshire, 24 were out of blast, and whole villages were reduced to starvation. Similar stories came from Newport, Tredegar, Mertir Tidville, and other growing towns of Monmouthshire and South Wales, whilst thousands of ironworkers and colliers were suddenly thrown out of work. The natural consequences ensued. As William Coppet himself observed, when men are in distress, they are out of humor. They have not time and are not in a disposition to listen to reason. Because bread was at famine prices, the existing supplies of corn were diminished by incendiaries. Because work was scarce, machinery was smashed and factories were destroyed. From all parts of the country came reports of violence and crime. In the eastern counties there was an alarming amount of unrest and disorder. Barns and ricks were burnt to the ground, thrashing machines and other agricultural implements were publicly burned, bakers and butchers' shops were attacked, and angry mobs demanded bread or blood. Cargos of wheat and potatoes intended for export were seized. Immense damage was inflicted upon property, and Littleport, in the Isle of Ely, Presented the appearance of a town sacked by a besieging army. Nor was the unrest confined to the agricultural counties. The Tyneside colliers, the Preston cotton weavers, the Wiltshire cloth workers, the Monmouthshire and Staffordshire iron workers, the jute workers of Dundee, all alike were in ferment, demanding more employment, higher wages, and cheaper food the agitation was not exclusively economic it began to assume a political complexion with the cries for more work and cheaper food there began to mingle demands for universal suffrage and annual parliaments demagogues like orator hunt brilliant pamphleteers like william cobbett added fuel to the flames and byron exhausted his powers of mordant sarcasm in pouring contempt upon the government Cobbett's political register was, at the end of 1816, reduced in price from one shilling to tuppence and began to exercise an unbounded political influence. Political clubs sprang up like mushrooms. The Hampton clubs, founded by Major Cartwright in 1815, began to formulate many of the demands afterwards embodied in the Charter. The Spensian philanthropists preached communistic doctrines to hungry mobs. In the background, we can discern the more sinister figures of political conspirators and even assassins, men of the type of the Watsons and Thistlewood. In the winter of 1816, London itself was alarmed by an outbreak of disorder. On November 15th, a meeting was organized in Spa Fields, Bermondsey to call attention to the sufferings of the distressed manufacturers artisans and others of the cities of london and westminster the borough of southwark and parts adjacent and after much wild talk was adjourned to december second rumours gained ground of an organised attack upon the government of plots to seize the tower and the bank and to seduce the army undoubtedly there was much inflammatory language mobs assembled bearing tricolor badges and men talked of a committee of public safety on december second the adjourned meeting was held in spa fields the mob inflamed by speeches from the watsons made off to clerkenwell and well smithfield sacked a gunsmith's shop at snow hill and armed with their booty marched through cheapside and invaded the royal exchange Courageously confronted by Matthew Wood, the Lord Mayor, their further progress was arrested and after some time order was restored. But behind the mob, serious political forces were in operation. Precisely a week after the Spafields meeting, the Corporation of London formally addressed the Prince Regent. They declared that, the distress and misery which for so many years has been progressively accumulating has at length become insupportable, and that the commercial, the manufacturing, and the agricultural interests are equally sinking under its irresistible pressure, and it has become impossible to find employment for a large mass of the population. They ascribed the distress and discontent to Rash and ruinous wars, unjustly commenced and pertinaciously persisted in, to gross extravagance in the war and peace, and above all to the corrupt and inadequate state of the representation of the people in Parliament. They begged the regent to urge upon Parliament measures for making every practicable reduction in the public expenditure and restoring to the people their just share and weight in the legislature. The Prince Regent did not add to his popularity by the severe snub which he inflicted upon the petitioners, and as he returned from the opening of Parliament, January 28, 1817, the windows of his coach were smashed. On the reassembling of Parliament, ministers were confronted by a menacing situation political agitation was clearly supervening upon the social disorder arising from economic distress would it under these circumstances be wise or even possible to embark upon the path of reform might not concession be interpreted as weakness was it not imperative to begin with the restoration of social order but would not repression drive the moderates into the arms of the extremists the secure wisdom of posterity may suggest that the way of safety lay in a judicious combination of strong administration and timely reform but such a policy would have demanded a precise diagnosis of the situation no ministry could safely plunge into the sea of reform without previously ascertaining the strength and direction of the currents and cross currents they would have to encounter was the country ripening for revolution would reform, arrest, or precipitate it? Were the sporadic outbreaks of disorder due to the intolerable pressure of economic distress, or evidences of a settled design to overturn the existing order? Such were the questions confronting the executive, and no fair minded critic will be quick to blame Lord Liverpool and his colleagues if they were not answered with the assurance and wisdom which come only with a knowledge of the event. The Prince Regent's speech at the opening of Parliament, January 28th, referred to the attempts which have been made to take advantage of the distresses of the country for the purpose of exciting a spirit of sedition and violence. Secret committees were immediately appointed in both houses, and on February 18th and 19th their reports were laid before Parliament. The Committees, after an investigation of the information at the disposal of the Executive, were clearly impressed with the gravity of the situation. They held that both in London and in the provinces, notably in the manufacturing districts of Lancashire, Leicestershire, Derby, Nottingham and Glasgow, there was clear evidence of a deliberately planned revolutionary movement. They deplored the multiplication of political clubs and societies, and the dissemination of inflammatory publications, which not only demanded advanced political reforms, such as universal suffrage and annual elections, but aimed at the plunder and division of all property, which taught that the landowner was a monster to be hunted down, and that worse than the landowners were the fundholders, rapacious creatures who take from the people... 15 pence out of every quartern loaf. In view of these reports, Sidmouth and Castlereagh had little difficulty in persuading Parliament to suspend the habeas corpus act for four months, March 3rd through July 1st, and to pass further acts to prohibit the holding of seditious meetings, to prevent the seduction of the army and navy from their allegiance, and to provide for the security of the regent's person. More keenly criticized was a letter issued by Lord Sidmouth to the Lord Lieutenants, March 27th, urging the magistrates to issue warrants for the apprehension of persons charged before them upon oath with the publication of blasphemous and seditious pamphlets and writings, and to compel them to give bail to answer the charge. The circular was regarded as an insidious attack upon the liberty of the press and though prosecutions were numerous convictions were few the most notorious and damaging fiasco was the prosecution on december eighteenth of an antiquarian bookseller named hone who had published certain profane parodies such as the sinecurist's creed despite the efforts of the attorney-general and chief justice ellenborough to secure a conviction hone induced the jury to acquit him and the popularity of the verdict was unmistakable meanwhile agitation was renewed in the north and midlands early in march large meetings of workingmen organized in manchester were dispersed by the authorities and on march twenty ninth some thousands of the agitators set out upon a journey to london which from the fact that the men carried blankets is known as the march of the blanketeers the march was arrested and the men dispersed before they had got many miles out of Manchester. More serious but still abortive was an insurrection planned by a man named Brandreth in the Midlands on June 10th. Some alarm was created by the march of armed rioters in Derbyshire and Nottingham, but the rioters were easily dispersed by the yeomanry, and ringleaders were arrested and paid for their criminal folly with their lives. In consequence of these renewed disturbances, secret committees were again appointed, June third in both Houses, and the committees found, but too many proofs of the continued existence of a traitorous conspiracy for the overthrow of our established government and Constitution, and for the subversion of the existing order of society. Before the prorogation, Parliament renewed until March first, 1, 1818, the Suspension of the Habeas Corpus Act End of Section 3